week, I think I'm going to get through these songs without falling apart. Every single week. You'd think I'd learn by now. 20 years, I don't think I've made it a week yet. That, uh, that song we just did, Living Hope, is uh, sort of a theme song for First Thessalonians. As we, um, as we work through this letter that Paul writes to the church, that's, that's the theme, that's the idea, that's the, the, the principle that governs it all, is that Jesus Christ is our living hope. The, the sure and certain reality of His return is our source of hope in a hostile, fallen, broken, sin-stained world. Only a holy God could do what He did for us. Today is the first Sunday of the month. We will, later in the service, participate together in the sacred ceremony that the church has has had since its inception, since Jesus introduced it uh, before he was betrayed. And I want to encourage you to let those songs ring in your mind and in your heart, even as the word that we study together rings in your mind and in your heart later as we take those elements, that our holy God offers us the right to become his children by sending His Son Jesus to die for us, not because we were worthy, but specifically because we never could be. We're His enemies. By nature, children of wrath. How great a chasm exists between our sinfulness and a holy God. This is the reality that drives us as Christ follows. All right. I better start my timer. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have not already, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. As we consider the glorious ringing that Paul talks about in this passage. <clears throat> before, before I do this, I'm giving you time to, to look it up. This, at the risk of TMI, uh, I, I just it's been in my mind so much over the last several days, I can't get away from it. There is something overwhelming and powerful about the people of God singing the truths of the gospel together. Is there not? And, and when we were together down at, uh, in Indy this week, the overseers and I and, and Gabe filled in for Jeff uh, when he couldn't make it. And, and, and this, this main hall that had, I don't know how many people, Wayne, how many did it, did you say? 6,000, something like that. It's a huge amount of people. Way too, way too many people for me to be in a crowded room. It, it kind of freaks me out. But all of these voices, men, women, even some children there, uh, little babies in strollers were there, all ages, 
singing together the songs of the faith. It was powerful. Now, the TMI part, during, during one of the worship segments, because th- these things are packed together, right? Morning to night, and I'm trying really hard to be disciplined and drink a lot of water. So I had to leave for a moment to, to go to the bathroom. And I don't often share bathroom experiences, but I got to tell you, this was a glorious thing to walk into the men's room from the worship out in the hall to a bathroom filled with men still singing the worship of God. I mean, this, these are men. Men in America don't sing today. We just, we, you know, but we need it. Our hearts need it. Our families need it. The church needs to hear its men in particular singing. But all of us singing together, lifting the worship of our holy God. It drives home the truths that we learn from the Word. It puts them in our hearts and in our minds. The music of the church is itself a form of catechism as it teaches us and connects us with the truth of God's Word. Even in a bathroom in Indianapolis. All right, so without further ado, let me get to work here. Uh, the, the core reality for the whole book of 1 Thessalonians as we've been working through it is the reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. When we looked at, at verse 1 a couple weeks ago, we saw that God provides refuge from this hostile world in the safety of His family. So Paul is writing this letter to the church. We are sitting together, standing together as a church. We are the family of God gathered in, in a household. And throughout the New Testament, each of these letters that have funny-sounding names that are place names are are written to churches in a locality. In other words, a local church with a local membership where the people know each other and are committed to one another. It's in that context that we can see, even in Paul's greeting, that God provides refuge from this hostile world in the safety of his family. But to be in the safety of that family and find refuge, we have to know who we are, who's the family, right? I, when, when people come into my house, I know if they are part of my household or if they're a guest. And, and hopefully I recognize if they're an intruder, but, but I recognize a difference between those who are invited to come and be with us. And I want them to feel welcome and, and I, I want to, to uh, seek them out and show them love. And those who belong to the household, who after the guests go home, remain. Where we do life together, and we celebrate together, and we suffer together. That's the family. Verses 2-7, through when we considered that, we saw the core reality that God's family is clearly seen, clearly recognized in lives transformed by the gospel. You're not part of the church, and even though we often see this in in the visible church, the the church that people see formally, you can be a member of a church and not be part of the church, not be in Christ, the same way people can speak marriage vows and not mean them, right? So we know, know we live in a world of high divorce rates. Some of you have dealt with that already. When you spoke vows till death do us part and one or the other party didn't mean it. Maybe they thought they meant it at the time, but they didn't really count the cost of what that was going to be. 
So they went through the ceremony, and they wore the dress, or they wore the suit, and, and people called them Mr. and Mrs., but they weren't actually connected. How do you know? God's family is clearly seen in lives not, not professing the gospel, not not have gone through a baptism ceremony and, and, and you know, you've, you've got the jersey, but you're not on the team, right? Clearly seen, clearly recognized in lives that have taken Jesus so seriously, that have recognized this gospel message as real, not as, not as something that we mentally assent to or we volitionally aspire to so that if I can live the life, if I can be good enough, I can, I can you know, work my way into heaven or I can earn my way into the church or I can act the part and people will think well of me and God will bless me. Not that. People who have taken Christ so seriously that it has changed them from the inside out. And if we're changed inside, we, we might change on the outside and not be changed inside, but we can't change on the inside and not be changed on the outside. Right? Our beliefs drive our behaviors. So the new identity that we find in Christ, by its nature, changes us. And the children begin to look like the Father. God's family is clearly seen in lives transformed by the gospel. Last week, as we, as we considered that, um, we kind of worked through the ideas within that. So just as a, a way of quick review, because it's the foundation of what we're going to be seeing in the next couple of verses, we looked at verses 2 to 7 last week. We'll look at verses 8 to 10 today. But as we work through this, just a quick review, we saw that the family of God gratefully prays for one another. We saw that in verse 2 as Paul was praying for the church family of God gratefully prays for one another. We saw also that what comes from us reveals what is in us, right? If I put a bucket down into a well and draw it up, what comes out in that bucket is clearly what's in the well. What comes out of me is what is in me. It's who I am. So we saw that in three points that, that Paul brought up. Faith shows it up and shows itself in, <clears throat> excuse me, diligent obedience, right? We, if we believe if we have received Christ by faith, we've put our, our hope and our trust in Him, that shows up in our work. We're not saved by diligent obedience, but we are saved, therefore, because of what change He's made in our lives. If we believe that He is who He says He is, then we diligently strive to obey. Like a child pleasing a parent. We see also that love shows itself in selfless effort. So if Faith shows itself in diligent obedience. Love shows itself in selfless effort. Some of us looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 13 this morning in Sunday school, and as we were talking about this and how it relates to, uh, to the picture that, that Paul gives of the church, illustrated in marriage, the, the role of, of husband and wife connected to the role of Christ and the church, as we reflect that, love shows up not in just feelings and emotions, we know that comes and goes, right? If you've been married for more than 10 minutes, you ought to say amen, right? That love feelings come and go. The affection can pass. You have a fight, you're not feeling particularly loving in that moment. And if you don't have a fight at some point, then you're not actually married. So the, the reality of relationships is we're going to have conflict. 
The question of love is what does it do when it doesn't feel? Does it put the other person's needs ahead of its own? Love shows itself in selfless effort. And then we see that hope shows itself in steadfast endurance. And that, again, is is the central piece of this letter. As Paul speaks to the Thessalonian church, he only had a short time with them. And they're in a, a, a very hostile environment. Paul was chased out of town under persecution. And these who remain are still facing persecution. They're clinging to Christ in a world that hates Christ. Doesn't even know it hates Christ until he sees them clinging to Christ. And then it hates Christ and tries to undermine their faith. And Paul is writing this letter to encourage them and to celebrate them, to remind them that the source of hope that they have that allows them to bear up under trial is knowing that Jesus is who He says He is and He does what He says He does. So He will return as He promised to set all things right. The victory is already sure. And so because we know that, now in this fallen, broken world that is hostile toward the gospel, we can stand strong. We can bear up under trial. We can endure. Hope shows shows itself in steadfast endurance. Verses 4 and 5 showed us that changed hearts make changed lives. All of this is leading into what we're going to be seeing today in verses 8 to 10. But Again, what's in us comes out of us. So a changed heart makes a changed life. When you see that changed life, it's an indication of something. If you see someone who claims Christ, but they look the same as they did before, still governed by their passions, still trusting in their own understanding, still pursuing the world, their their desires haven't changed, they still love the same entertainment, Did they really change inside? Now listen, none of us are perfect. I want to say that again because I'm hoping for an amen on that. None of us are perfect. Here's the reality. We are not, by our our salvation, we've been made right with God. He has saved us by His grace. He's settled the books, settled the accounts, and all of our debt has been paid by Christ. Therefore, we get credited with His righteousness. That's the term impute if you hear there's a difference between impute and impart so imputed means we are credited with his righteousness he is credited with our debt he paid it all and because jesus paid it all he is our living hope now if that's the case then we are clean we're set right however we still carry around with us this body these thoughts, these urges that come from us. Some of that's natural, but that natural self is bent towards sin. It's been corrupted by sin in the fall. We are all, in that sense, depraved and corrupted. We could be worse, but we sure aren't what we should be. When we get saved, we progress in our sanctification. We grow. When a baby is born, it has to learn how to do everything. It has to learn how to walk and talk and all these things. It's expected. You don't expect a baby as soon as it's born to be a fully formed adult. We as Christ followers are in a similar state. We are reborn. We are new in Christ, new creatures altogether. But 
We still have to learn how to walk and talk. And it takes time. And we will fall. We will stumble. But someone who is newly born in Christ has a new heart. God has taken out the heart of stone, Ezekiel 36 says, and He's put in a heart of flesh. Now our desire is for Him. When it comes to our daily living, the biggest difference between a Christ follower and who I was before is not that I've got it all figured out now. I've been doing this a long time, and I still don't have it all figured out. I still struggle with my thoughts and my temper and all, all, all my selfishness and my pride. The difference is a Christ follower who has a new heart hates that sin. Before, it didn't bother me. When we're unbelievers, most of us generally think we're pretty good people. You know, I've you know, got problems, but I'm doing my best, right? God knows I'm trying hard even when I'm not trying hard, because we don't try hard. We tell ourselves we do, but we don't. And so we often aren't even worried about our sin. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us, changes our hearts, now my desire is no longer for just what I want, what makes me feel good right now. It's no longer even for what makes me feel good long term. My desire is for the glory of God. My heartbreak over my sin is not that it gave me some messed up effects. It's not that my substance use turned into addiction. That's not the primary concern anymore in a regenerated heart. Of course it's a concern. It's a problem. But it was a problem and a concern when my life spun out of control before I knew Christ. Now my concern is that that problem takes away, it diminishes the glory of God reflected in my life. I don't want to break His heart. He's my daddy. He's my father. My desire changes. My heart changes. Therefore, in Christ, we're not perfect. We've been perfected in Christ, but our daily living, we're not going to live perfectly. But we're going to become more and more like Him. We will reflect Him more and more progressively increasingly, until one day when we're with Him face to face, it's complete. And He finishes the job He started in us. Philippians 1.6 is a picture of that. We can see it all play out every time we look forward to the events that, that come with the new heavens and new earth. It culminates in us being just like Him. That's the destiny of every believer in Christ. Whatever you're struggling with, if you are in Christ right now, and I I'm looking at you. I know you. You know me. Ain't any of us perfect. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, rest assured, when Christ returns, you won't be struggling anymore. It will be done. It will be complete. And you will be made perfectly like the Son of God. That's your destiny. All right. I got a little bit excited, so... Let me come back to, to the outline so we can get done today. Changed hearts make changed lives. Because of those changed lives, the reality of Christ leads to joyful discipleship even through suffering. We see that in verse 6. That they're following even in the midst of suffering. They receive the message with the joy that the Holy Spirit gives even in suffering because of the reality of Christ in them. In verse 7 we saw that lives transformed by the gospel 
help transform others. Right? They became a model for the other churches. They, they followed Paul's example. They followed the examples of the churches in Judea. And they, as they were striving to follow Christ, they became a model for others, even including those other believers that maybe had known Christ longer. But, but their transformed lives helped to transform others. And that brings us to where we are today. Gospel transformation, lives changed by the gospel because the Holy Spirit is moving in us with the power and conviction that we talked about last week. That that gospel transformation makes God's family obvious. If we really believe that He is, and that He is who He says He is, and that His word is true, it changes everything. It changes the very core of who we are. And that change influences others, which is the core reality of our text today. That core reality is a life transformed by the gospel influences others for God's glory. A life transformed by the gospel influences others for God's glory. We'll be considering verses 8 to 10, but I would like to read for you verses uh, 2 to 10. And I would invite you just to to demonstrate our reverence for God's Word, to separate the Word itself from from any human preaching about God's Word, I would like to invite you at this time, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're not, then show that reverence in your heart. But if you're able to stand, let's do that. This is from the NIV 1984 edition. This is the Word of God. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Receive it in faith. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we we open Your Word, remind us that this is not human opinion. We are not concerned with the prevailing culture as our guiding light. We trust. We trust in You. And because we trust in You, we trust in the Word that You have delivered to us the teachings of the, of the apostles, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
Father, make us diligent in seeking to understand your word. Give us a hunger to know you better, and therefore to feast on this book, even as we feast on Christ himself. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Open our hearts to your word as you open your word to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, a life transformed by the gospel influences others for God's glory. This is the, the message that we need to understand from this text. It's the melody that runs through the entire piece. A life transformed by the gospel influences others for God's glory. The first chapter of 1 Thessalonians establishes a foundation for all that comes after it. The truth of the gospel changes everything about those who... Uh, it changes everything about everything, right? So if, if the gospel is real to us, if we recognize the truth of it, it changes everything about everything for everyone who will embrace it. Last week we saw that Christ followers are recognized by actually following Christ. Makes sense, right? Today we're going to look at the impact and influence of that, that, that particular transformation has on others. So let's uh, consider this as we go through it. We'll take a look at it. doesn't quite fall uh, verse by verse because the concepts are blended into the verses in various points, but we'll be able to follow and see it. Let's start with the ringing since we're talking about this glorious ringing. What is it that, that we're talking about? Notice this. A, a transformed life draws attention to the one who transformed it. A transformed life draws attention to the one who transformed it. Notice first uh, in verse 8 what this ringing is. Right? What, what does he say there? The Lord's message rang out from you. It's the Lord's message that's ringing. The ringing, this glorious ringing, is the gospel. It's the message of God. It's the good news that though we deserve God's wrath because of sin, He offers us life through His Son. Jesus Christ is the message. He is the ringing. That, that good news, the gospel, is what rang out. Now, as we... Uh, kind of focus in here, you may notice the, the, the church bell theme that we're kind of looking at. I hope that helps you to see it a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I loved when we took over responsibility for the, the uh, St. John's, John's property after the church closed over there is it's a really old church. Well, I mean, for us, not European old, but it's really old for around here, right? Building was built in 1898 and and one of the oldest churches in our in our community, and it's got those bells, right? It's got the church bells, and it used to have the the carol on that that would play. It doesn't work right now, but you know, boy, it would be great to get that going. And and some of you are old enough to remember when the church bells rang on a regular schedule through the day, right? Raise your hand if you if you remember that. If you, that was part of your growing up, what what a thing, right? Even if you didn't go to church, that's part of your memory. Because everybody in town could hear the bells. And I used to, you know, I used to wonder what it was like to live next door to that, right? Because we were out in the country. We didn't hear church bells out there. But, but to hear that bell ringing, that, 
clear sound, that loud sound that, you know, the crank might say, well, you know, waking me up with a stupid bell router. Yeah. But what a beautiful thing. Church is starting. It's time to gather. It's time to pray. It's time to seek God. And the bells would be used in, in older times in civil use as well to gather the people, to warn the people of danger. Later on, we end up with sirens. i got to tell you, a church bell just sounds different than the firehouse siren. It, I love the noon whistle. It's great growing in a small town, but church bell's got a whole different ring to it, if you will. Pun was unintended, but I'll claim it. <clears throat> notice also that this ringing, the, the message is what is ringing, but notice also from where that message rang out. The the Lord's message rang out from you. It, it came from the believers in, Thessal in Thessalonica, which is interesting to me because we talked about the fact that Paul was only there for like three weeks. Three Sabbaths, and then he, he jets, right? So these newbies to the faith, these baby Christians, are so convinced of the reality of Christ and the gospel that it's transformed them enough that now, maybe a year later, probably less, maybe a year later, the gospel message is ringing out from them. And people have already heard about it. When the Lord changes our hearts and minds and others observe that change, it's like church bells. A clear sound that carries and summons all who hear it to pay attention and to respond. Each one of us who follow Christ is part of the process of witness that God has ordained. You and I are those church bells. We are, we're not the message, but we're the sound of that message ringing out. We're, we're not even necessarily the bells, but we're like the ones that are yanking that rope, Right? And as the, the, as the beauty and glory and truth of the gospel comes up from within, Christ has put it in us and united us to Himself. And now that gospel truth changes us. It changes how we think, how we talk, how we treat people, how we live, our entertainment choices. And people see that and say, something weird going on with that one. Something changed, right? It rings out. We are the bell. Each one of us who follow Christ is part of the process, part of the process of testimony, of witness that God has ordained. Isn't that what Jesus told the church when He left? Stay in Jerusalem until you receive power on high. Right? Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses when you receive this power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're filled with Holy Spirit power, it's not power to do fancy magic tricks. It's the power to speak the truth in a hostile world. It's the power of a changed life that can't be silent. It's the power of a fire that's been lit inside and it has to burn and it has to glow and it has to shed heat and light on those around it. And it can't be covered up. 
how can the people around us hear the word without a call? If he's changed us and we keep shut up inside, how will those who are still on the road to hell, still children of wrath, actually living and dying every day, separated from God by sin, spending eternity under God's judgment, how will they ever know if we keep silent? I have to press on. Notice next, the resonating. I had to, to do a little vocabulary research to try to figure out the, the nuances, the difference between resonance and reverberation, between resonating and reverberating. And I liked it, so I used it. The resonating is that, that tone, and, and you know, there's all kinds of technical definitions, which about gave me a headache. But anyway, as, as a bell rings or whatever source of sound, the resonating is the, the impact of that sound as it goes out, and it carries, right? Reverberation is different. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but the carrying forth of that sound is the resonating. Notice this, our Christian testimony has an impact on both believers and unbelievers. Our Christian testimony, that's the story of what has actually happened to us. Witnesses testify to what they see and hear and know personally, not what their opinion is, not trying to convince anybody, but this is what happened and this is my how I was connected to it. So our Christian testimony is simply just telling the truth. But that testimony has got to be backed up. If we claim that Jesus did something in us, He had to actually do something in us, right? If I bear witness in a courtroom that I saw something happen that I didn't see happen, and it turns out that the evidence points away from that, that it didn't happen, that's a false witness. I'm lying. If I'm going to have a testimony for Christ, it's not about how cool the story is. It's about how true the story is. It doesn't matter if you were a, you know, a crack-dealing prostitute communist spy and you got saved and it's all this, wow, what a great, we should write a book about it. Or you grew up in Sunday school and you never did a, a wrong thing in the world's eyes, but you recognize that your heart was far from Christ. They don't write a lot of books about that, do they? I remember growing up in church as a, as a kid being kind of had that, had that testimony envy. You know, if you grew up in church, maybe you know what I'm talking about. But wow, that, that was a story. I wish, I wish I was that off the rails so I could tell that great testimony. But you know what? I was every bit as off the rails as that. And I spent most of my life in church. I was singing Jesus songs from the time I was able to make words. But my heart was far from Him. And I was guilty of cosmic treason against God. I would love to develop that further, but we need to recognize that our testimony is not about us. Our testimony is about Him, right? Remember that, that a, a, a life that's been changed by the gospel draws attention to the one who changed it. 
my testimony isn't about me. Who cares about me? Who cares about what my story is except to the extent that it can draw attention to him, to the one who saved me, to the one who changed me, Jesus Christ, my living hope. That's the one that you need to see. You don't need to see this guy. Most of you know me. There's really not that, it's nothing exciting. You know, just another idiot like everybody else. But God snatched me out of hell by Christ's work on the cross. Our Christian testimony has an impact on both believers and unbelievers. Notice in the the latter half, 8b, if you will, the latter half of verse 8, that the news that has spread is the news of their faith. Right? So, excuse me, what does he say here in 8? The Lord's message rang out from you not only at Macedonia and Achaia, excuse me, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So, So what is it? It's their faith. Now, what... What they talk about is one thing. But what people see, the news that they're talking about, the the thing that's got people's attention, is a changed life. That's what people see. right? People People will hear what your message, and they may take it seriously, they may blow you off, but they can't dispute your changed life. When they see the reality of God manifest in you, They may reject the message, sure, but they can't ignore the reality. It's not mere talk. It's the evidence of faith that gets people's attention. Our testimony about the great things God has done for us in Christ resonates like a ringing bell, spreading far and wide. Great things He has done. To God be the glory. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Let the people rejoice. That's what's happening here. This bell of their testimony is ringing and the Lord's message is going out and it's spreading far and wide. Not just here in in Achaia but uh, in, in Macedonia, but everywhere it's being put out there. And Paul's not citing some fanciful religious idea. He's not, he's not talking about some nebulous idea or concept of faith. Your faith is only partly the point. He's not talking about faith as if the act of believing were the thing being discussed. Notice that it's specifically their faith in God. Right? Your faith in God. The point is not faith for the sake of faith. It's not a a Disney Channel follow your heart kind of belief. If you just believe, you can do anything. If you believe hard enough. Or like Dumbo with the feather able to fly, right? It's um, We haven't seen Dumbo? Okay. It's not just a happy, positive thought. That makes for a good movie. But you gotta, you got to have reality. Dumbo had to have the big ears. The point is not faith for the sake of faith, like some kind of positive thinking sort of exercise, but God as the object of that faith. The power of the message isn't that you believed it. The power of the message is that God is real. Therefore, you believed it. Therefore, that belief changed you. And the change that is observable in you causes others 
to see Him and to give glory to God and to want to know, how can I get some of that? I want to know that kind of God. Jesus Christ is the only, the only right object of our faith. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. Faith by itself, faith in faith, if you will, has zero power. It's a dead end. So Paul points out that this ringing testimony, the message of God that rang out, about their faith in God, that this is not just local, but beyond. He says it's not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So this ringing bell is resonating far and wide. So the news has spread not just among the believers, but among the unbelievers, both Jew and Gentile. How do we know that? Well, because Paul is going and he's starting new churches, right? So there are believers around, and, and it's, it's a logical presumption that they, that they are hearing the same thing. As the word is spreading, they're hearing it. But Paul's specifically talking about here, when he goes to these new places, and he goes to the synagogue, and he tries to establish the gospel foundation in these synagogues, these people have already heard about the Thessalonians. So it's spreading among the believers and among the unbelievers, both Jew and Gentile. So much so that that people already know about this transformation before Paul can tell them about it. We don't even need to say anything because they're already reporting it themselves. Their reputation, the Thessalonians' reputation as transformed by the gospel, precedes the observation or the preaching. So the people that are hearing about it haven't met them yet. Paul hasn't preached the gospel yet, but their reputation is already preceding them. So those who already believe the gospel and hear this are encouraged by the news. We're built up, we're encouraged, exhorted, spurred on by one another's faith. The unbelievers become intrigued and want to hear more about it which then opens the doors wider for Paul. He's there to preach the gospel. And they're like, yeah, we've been waiting for you. Tell us. Because we heard about what happened in, in, in Thessalonica. There, you know, if it changed them, I, you know, hey, my cousin lives over there, and he used to worship these idols, and, and he got rid of his idols, and now he's worshiping God, and I can't even believe the transformation that I'm hearing about. Tell me about it. Paul is able to explain why the change has happened and preach the gospel because the testimony has already piqued interest. Right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But the horse still needs to drink, right? So what do you do? Well, you can salt the hay, make that horse thirsty because it needs the water. We're trying to give uh, Emma's horse some, some medicine this week. He hates the medicine. He's, he's a very emotional horse, a weird, weird horse. And he hates the medicine. So they mask it in applesauce. You might try that with your kids. Uh, didn't have any applesauce, so we masked it in, in robust molasses, right? Messy, gross. Horse liked it, got the job done. You see, when, when there's something that appeals 
to the senses. It cannot change anyone, but it can cause us to want to know more. When I see a change in somebody, their testimony, their story does not bring me to Christ, but it might make me question what's going on so that I want to know more about this Christ. I want to know more about that message. I want to, I want to temper that a little bit because we live in an age of what are often called seeker-driven or seeker-sensitive churches where we want, to, we want to cater to the felt needs of people. And I just want to encourage all of us to understand, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever right now, we need to recognize that that which is sown to the flesh can only reap from the flesh. So if I am, if I am trying to do church in a way that just appeals to your senses, to your human nature, trying to make the message of the gospel palatable, then you're not actually getting the gospel. right? Jesus didn't sneak in the back door. He said hard things. But the changed lives draw our attention. And then the gospel message can be preached. You cannot, no matter what you've heard, you cannot preach the gospel without words. You cannot. So the idea that, you know, pre- preach the gospel and, and when necessary use words, it's always necessary. Not in every moment, but in every relationship. My good life, my changed life, my gospel transformed life can get somebody's attention, but at some point when they hear the bell and they come, there's got to be something for them to come to. At some point, they've got to hear the message that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. They've got to come to this place of recognizing that God created me for something, and I'm failing at that. And all of us fail at that, and I have no hope of fixing it, but God stepped in to fix it for me. Other than that, they can pat you on the back and say, you're a really nice person. Boy, I want to be like them. I, I want to be like Marlene or, or, or Bruce. I, I, I want to be just like them. And they'll go to hell. Because being like someone else isn't going to fix the core problem that we are objects of wrath. Only the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And our faith in His work at the cross, His death and resurrection on our behalf, that alone saves Okay, so he points out that it's, that it's spreading far and wide. It's not just there locally. It, it's going out to everyone. It's spreading across, uh, across the board. And, and because of that, doors are open, ears are open, eyes are open. He's able to preach the gospel because the testimony's already piqued their interest. That is absolutely true for us as well, both as individuals and as a church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves sinners, not our story, but our story is often what God uses to get the attention of those around us. People in our community, right here in, in our local municipality in, in Three Oaks and Harbor Country and surrounding area, people in our community hear of the reputation of a church through the everyday lives of its members. They need to hear the gospel message. 
They need to hear it proclaimed out loud with words. But they will become interested and willing to check it out when they see us reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. Don't raise your hand for this. Don't raise your hand for this, but how many of you were turned off to church because of the people that you knew? Maybe you grew up in a church where you just thought, man, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with that. You went to church and, and, and you gathered and you did all the things, but then you're in the parking lot, you know, gossiping about somebody, using language that doesn't belong in the mouth of a Christian. And, and you know, you, you maybe fudge your taxes a little bit or you try to, try to outmaneuver somebody in a business deal. And, and you're just like, I, I don't want to be like that. But if that's the message, I, I don't need it. I don't need organized religion. I believe in Jesus, but I don't know about these people. That's unfortunately far too often the problem. But how many of you here today, how many of you came to real life because you met somebody or you heard about somebody and their life was transformed by the gospel. And, and they're like a different person. And you heard the reputation. Well, that church is a little different. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> We're a slick operation here, I'll tell you. Maybe you came because you heard, well, you know, that's, that, that's the church where they wear blue jeans. You know, the, the preacher's up there in a t-shirt. We're in a nicer building now, so now I put a jacket on. Maybe you heard you know, about the gospel being preached, but the person that you knew, that was the message, right? That, that was the difference. What, what happened to you? You were overwhelmed with despair before. And I see that your life is still kind of in the toilet, but you're handling it so much different than you did. I don't understand. How can you forgive that person for what they did to you? And all of this can open up a door to the gospel. People will be willing to check out your message when they see the reality reflected in your life. People will be willing to check out the gospel when they see us reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. All right, pressing on. The reverberation. So resonation is, is that sound going out from a source. Reverberation... Uh, tends to refer to that sound being then translated to others. It bounces off a wall and goes over there, and it, it connects kind of a domino effect in sound. And so notice this. When people see real change, they tell others. When people see real change, they tell others. Because of the resonating reputation of these Thessalonians, this message is being reported to others. Unbelievers are helping to spread the message. Notice in verse 9, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. So Paul's getting there, just, just so we're following, we're tracking with what he's saying. Paul's getting on site in the new place, right? And the people have already heard about the change in the people in Thessalonica. And they're telling other people, they're reporting to one another about the reception that the Thessalonians 
have given to Paul and, and his team. And in receiving the messengers, they're receiving the message. It doesn't mean that all of them believed, but they received it, they're hearing it. And as they are hearing that message, they received them, they wrestled with it, they took it in. That message is then being reported to others who report it to others in this uh, in the same dynamic that you might uh, see on social media sharing memes and gifts or or gossip in you know in a negative way or are hungering for more and more news all the time that same dynamic can can drive this distri- distribution of information and it actually leads unbelievers to assist in spreading the gospel unwittingly of course but as they're spreading this information and the reputation is going out, it's, it has an impact. They need the message. But in a sense, the unbelievers who still need the message themselves are often doing the, the legwork, the, the advertising or promotion, if you will, themselves. Did you see that person? Did you hear about Jimmy Joe and how he changed? Man, did I tell you about Uncle Ned? You know, this lady, she was the biggest jerk ever. I mean, I, you know how I felt about her. But did you hear how she's changed? Unbelievers, before they even get the message, assist in spreading the word just by natural curiosity. That's the reverberation. When people see real change, they tell others. That in itself isn't spreading the gospel message, but it is spreading the message of the effects of the gospel that can open the door to get the message in. And I I would love to spend more time on this next point. We're going to have to pick it up in weeks to come. But I want it's relatively straightforward, so I want to lay it out for you and then... uh, I think we'll just have it woven in through the rest. But notice next, the repentance. Gospel transformation involves at least these four things that are seen here in uh, 1 Thessalonians. So looking at the text, we see uh, verses 9 and 10. as they, as Paul is recounting for them the report that they're giving, he says, they tell how you turned to God from idols. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So the gospel transformation involves at least these four things. First, turning to the one true God in faith. Turning to the one true God in faith. Hebrews eleven six says that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So I, I receive the message. I believe the message. I put my hope and trust in the message. When we look at biblical saving faith, that's what we're talking about. It's, a, it's a, not just a belief mentally, but it's a belief with my whole being that I'm putting my hope on that. I'm, I'm standing on this stool I'm jumping and this is my parachute. This is it. All my faith is here. I turn to the one true God in faith. Second, we see in them and in us turning from false gods in remorse. So we turn to the one true God in faith. We turn from false gods 
in remorse. Remorse is a connection between the uh, the mental regret, the emotional grief, the sorrow over my sin. But notice that it results in a turning. It's not just a change in behavior, and it's not just a t- change in thinking. Very often we'll talk about repentance in terms of a new mind, a changed mind. And it is, it, it is absolutely that. And the Greek term that we see in metanoia has to do with a, a, a new mind, a new thinking. This idea isn't enough. That's kind of what the Gnostics believe, that, that spiritual knowledge, that was it. They have a special knowledge, and the flesh doesn't matter because the flesh is evil to begin with. Only the spirit matters. That's not biblical faith. That's not biblical repentance. It's a new mind that leads to a new direction. I turn to God from idols and I don't like what I was. I don't want that anymore. Third, we see that gospel transformation involves living for God in obedience. Living for God in obedience. They turned uh, to the one true living God from idols to serve the one true living God. If I'm living for Him, I'm living in obedience to Him. In Romans 10, uh, as we see this formula, if you will, given for what must I be, do to be saved, when Paul says, if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, don't pass over that. Confessing with my mouth that He is Lord, confessing is different than professing, right? Confessing is I'm, I'm speaking out of conviction. This is coming from within. I'm agreeing with reality. So this is true, and I recognize that it's true, that Jesus is Lord, and it's my conviction. But being Lord isn't some spiritual thing. It means He's the boss. He's the master. He calls the shots. So I do what He says. I live a life of obedience because He's the Lord. When I recognize Him as Lord, it changes how I choose to live, how I want to live. And it comes from within. I have to believe in my heart, that He is who He says He is, that God raised Him from the dead, and I can be raised with Him. Gospel transformation involves turning to the one true God in faith, turning from false gods in remorse, living for God in obedience, and notice also, I think maybe we leave this out of our gospel too often, waiting for God's Son in hope. Waiting for God's Son in hope. That's, that's kind of the hinge for this letter. It's that reality of Christ's return, the fulfillment of His promises to us, the coming age that gives us a reason to hope in this hostile world because our victory is already secure. It's already settled. If I know He's coming back and I know He's going to do what He said, it changes how I live. It changes how I think, and it gives me hope. And he closes with the rescue. He closes with this idea. Notice the core of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The core of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Notice they turned 
to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. And He identifies Him specifically and clearly as the Thessalonians already know, he's saying this, he's reminding them. It's not new information for them, just like it's not new information for you here in this church today. Jesus, that's the Son. That's the one God raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Notice, it's Jesus who rescues us. He saves He rescues. He rescues us. The gospel invitation is open to all. The call goes out and everyone can respond. The problem is our sinful hearts don't respond. Our sinful hearts are hostile to God. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, gives us a new heart that desires life, not just change. We, we, we often want change. You know, when things are going wrong, we want out of the wrong. No, raise your hand if you want to go to hell. I'm, no, who wants to go to hell? Everybody wants to be saved from hell. But when God gives us a new heart, we want more than just a get out of hell free card. We want Him. He connects us with His glory. He rescues us who will receive the truth. And He rescues us from the wrath to come. Notice again this forward focus, this this picture of the future, that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, we see in, in so many places, this is when the judgment happens. All of us will stand before God. And all that does not already belong to God, all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, will face His judgment. will be cast into the lake of fire. When Christ gets rid of sin, that's not going to be a nice and a pretty day. The Old Testament prophets make it very clear that it is a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A dark and terrible day. And the saints of God, though riding with Him in victory, will weep and grieve even while they celebrate the glory of God. Why would I say something like that? Because God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Even when the most wicked person dies, God is not happy that... He's, God is happy in Himself, but He's not happy. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked but He does delight in His own glory. The rescue for us is the truth that Jesus Christ rescues us from the coming wrath, that He he came to save sinners. Each one of us was created and born for a purpose. That purpose for every single one of us. It's not your individual follow-your-heart purpose. Every single one of us was created for the express purpose of being in an intimate relationship with God. To know God, to glorify God, to enjoy God in perfect intimacy. But our sin separates us from God. 
the sin we inherit from Adam, the sin you and I choose for ourselves, it keeps us from ever being able to fulfill our purpose, the reason we exist. Why are so many people disheartened, discouraged, feel insignificant, dissatisfied? It's because we were made for a purpose and we can't fulfill it because of our rebellion against God. It's our natural state. And we can't fix that with religion. We can't, you know, the, the Pharisees tried that. The, the whole 39 books of the Old Testament are kind of given that picture. All the sacrifices in the world can't cleanse the conscience fully. All of that can't take away sins permanently. It just kicks the can down the road, if you will. And it was pointing forward to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. We're going to celebrate that in a few moments here. That Jesus, as the perfect Passover lamb, the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices from the law of Moses died in our place so that death would pass us over. Paying the price for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of all who will receive the message. Jesus died in our place on the cross. A criminal's death, a humiliating death. He became sin in the eyes of God for us so that we could, in the eyes of God, become God's own righteousness. We get credited for His goodness. He gets credited for our sin. And that's the good news. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And He makes that available to anyone who will receive it. Everyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, Jesus says. But you got to come. And you can't just come thinking that you're a pretty good person and you got something to offer God. The only way, the only way to come is face down in the dirt with empty hands recognizing I've got nothing to contribute, Lord. I can't, I can't offer you anything in trade for my life. I'm just clinging to the mercy you offer by sending your son Jesus to die in my place. And I'm putting all my hope, all my trust in the fact that he paid my debt and it can't be paid again. Therefore, as Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is a gospel that changes us. A life transformed by the gospel influences others for God's glory. Our witness is not about a perfect life. It's not about a life that we've gotten together, figured it out. Not even simply a testimony about a good life or a changed life. It certainly isn't about an easy life or what we might consider a prosperous life. Our witness is that of a new life, a life 
transformed by the gospel and lived for God's glory. I died with Christ and raised to walk in a new life with Him. That transformation will be observed easily enough by those who see us facing the same everyday things, but with a new heart, new desires, new reason for living, a new source of hope in a sinful, cursed, dangerous, and hostile world. And I want to encourage you with our memory verse for today. It's in your programs. You can see it. Hopefully you know it already. Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May the ringing testimony of your changed life draw attention to the one who changed it as you live openly before a watching world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for the privilege of being called Your children when we know full well that what we deserve is to be called Your enemies. Lord, help us Help us not to, to, to think that the gospel is somehow about just getting our lives figured out, coming to Jesus, going through a, a baptism ritual or a communion ritual, or sitting under preaching as some kind of a self-help thing to, to make life better. We praise you and thank you that, that you do many of those things in us. But Lord, remind us this, that this is for your glory. Help us to let our light shine that people would see our good works, our changed gospel-transformed lives, and that they would give You glory. That they would look and see who could do this, only a holy God. And that they might take hold of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ for the great things You have done for us. Lord, help us to draw all attention to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.